Right, so during our first message of the year, we saw how ultimately we are created for what? It's not, no, no, that's, that, that's, that's the theme of the year, but that wasn't what you saw. We were created for what with God? Intimacy, yes. All right, good job, Tommy. We were created for intimacy with God. And so last, we talked about one pathway to deeper intimacy is repentance. All right, there we go. My sophomore boy is representing. Uh, and tonight, we're going to continue in this series talking about how we can pursue deeper intimacy with God. And tonight, we're talking specifically about the discipline of worship. Our passage tonight comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, and this is how it reads. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Let me pray for us one more time before we dive into God's word tonight. Uh, Father God, thank you that uh, even greater uh, than our desire to know you uh, is your desire to draw us deep intimacy with yourself. And so, Father, we ask that as we look into your word tonight, uh, that you would help us just to see the ways in our hearts that uh, we do not yet worship you, uh, but as we view your mercy, would you draw us into deeper intimacy with yourself? We pray in Jesus' precious and powerful name. Amen. All right, so our big idea for tonight is this. Our worship of God is rooted in our understanding of the worth of God. Our worship of God is rooted in our understanding of the worth of God. And we're going to look at four things tonight. Oh, we'll go back. We're going to look at four things tonight. Uh, the first one is defining worship. What exactly do we mean by worship? The second thing is false worship. Then we'll look at what constitutes true worship. And finally, we're going to talk about what a life of worship looks like. So four things tonight. Usually there's only two. That means tonight's message will be twice as long. I'm just kidding. It's not going to be twice as long. Um, all right. So uh, first, defining worship. So before we can actually get into tonight's passage, we need to take some time to clarify what exactly we mean when we say the word worship. And for many of us, when we hear that word worship, uh, the first thing we probably think of is what we just did, right? We think of music. Worship and music are often intrinsically tied together in our minds. Or if I asked you, uh, how do other religions worship, you might think of images like this. That this is how Muslims worship, or that this is how Buddhists worship. And while that is true, that these may be various expressions of worship, these activities in and of themselves are not the essence of what worship is. So if you look at the dictionary definition of worship, these are what its root words are. It's literally the words worth and ship. Worth and ship. So worship is our response to an object's <laughs> worth. Ship means the condition of being, like you can be in a relationship, you can be in a friendship, you can be in a situationship, all of these are a condition of being. And when you put these words together, our functional definition of worship tonight is going to be this. Worship is to acknowledge something's worth. Worship is to acknowledge something's worth. Worship is not necessarily singing a song or bowing down, although these can be ways of worshiping. But fundamentally, what you are doing when you are worshiping something is that you are acknowledging that thing's worth. You are admiring its value. You are treasuring it. And you are declaring that that thing is good. That is the fundamental essence of what worship is. So if that's what the definition of worship is, then is all worship the same? 
No, worship can come in many different forms, and the first thing we're looking at tonight is false worship. In verse 2, Paul says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Paul spends the first 11 chapters of Romans describing all that God has done for us, and in the opening verse of Romans 12, Paul is inviting all the Christians in Rome into new lives of worship in response to what he just talked about. In verse 1, he exhorts us to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. However, in verse 2, Paul warns us of the opposite by saying that we must not be conformed to the pattern of this world. He's saying, don't be like this world. Don't fall into its patterns and routines. And here's the thing. The reason why Paul warns us to not worship like the world does isn't because the people of the world don't worship. They absolutely do. It's not the absence of worship that's problematic, but it is the object of their worship that's the issue. It's not the absence of worship. It is the object of their worship. And that is because what I want to suggest to you tonight is that everyone worships something. Everyone worships something. And I'm not going to talk about whether or not people worship gods other than the God of the Bible because the world isn't divided into worshipers of Jesus and worshipers of Allah and worshipers of Buddha. And then there's like non-religious people who don't worship at all. In fact, if anything, I would argue that non-religious people worship just as much, if not more, than religious people do. Because at least for non-religious people, your allegiance isn't divided between your God and whatever your idols are. You can be 100% fully devoted to that thing that you want. So here is how Paul describes what worship looks like in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 through 25. He says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. They exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. In those days, Roman families often kept physical idols, household gods, in their homes. And the Mediterranean pagan religions worshipped idols in the shape of beasts or beast hybrid human deities. And we might read that and we might think, Mr. Shah, that's not relevant to me because I don't do that. My family, we don't have physical statues in our home. Maybe you even have a cross in your home. You just have a nice little picture of white Jesus hanging on your wall. But these things, like having physical gods, household gods, are not what make you an idolater or not. But I get why that can be confusing, uh, because when I was in youth, I had the trouble, I had trouble grasping that concept when my youth pastor would tell me, like, yeah, we all commit idolatry. I'm like, dude, I have no idols in my home. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but here's an illustration that will hopefully be helpful. Uh, Neil Gaiman wrote a best-selling fantasy novel that later became a, a TV series called American Gods. And the premise, has anyone read or seen this? Yeah, okay. So the premise of this series is pretty fascinating. Uh, in this world, there are the old gods and the new. The old gods are the gods of the ancient myths like Odin and Loki and Anubis. And the new gods are the gods of things in the modern world like pop culture, technology, and the stock market. And what's happening in this universe is the old gods are losing power as people believe in them less and less, and new gods are gaining power as people depend on them more and more. Now, this uh, is absolutely not how the actual spiritual realm works. The god of the Bible is the creator of the universe, and his power does not depend on people's faith in him. If anything, I'd, I'd say the opposite. 
Um, however, um, what Neil Gaiman has illustrated so clearly is how the idols of humanity have changed along with the development of society. People no longer look to household gods, idols of fertility or weather or harvest to secure a good life. Instead, people look to things like money and influence and power. And because the false gods of modern day society are much more abstract, for their reason, their invisible influence is much more powerful. I did a survey uh, in assembly, and I asked the assembly students what their various religious backgrounds are. So for here assembly, this is what it looks like. We have uh, the majority being agnostic or atheist, non-religious. Uh, second largest is Christian, some uh, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, and Jews. Uh, because we do have a diverse body here. But if you were to measure, all right, so I want you to imagine this, right? All these students who identify with different religions. If you were to measure pound for pound, the amount of times students here at our school think about Jesus or think about Allah or think about Buddha versus the amount of time they spend thinking about their grades and thinking about their extracurriculars and thinking about their relationships. And I think we would quickly find that what's represented here are not the true gods of Yis. These are not the true objects of worship for Yis students. And so my question for you tonight is what is your false god? What is your idol? And what is the object of your false worship? What is the thing that you mistakenly believe will save you? Because while we may not bow down uh, and worship literal physical household gods, many of us are absolutely unyielding in our devotion to our false gods. Here's a helpful tip, right? If you're sitting there and you're like, I don't know what my idols are, Mr. Cha, I want you to think about uh, what gives you uh, the highest intensity of emotion? Okay, think about what gives you the strongest intensity of emotion. What do you long for the most? What do you daydream about? What makes you the most anxious? Who do you envy the most? And what do they have that you don't? Because emotions indicate our idols. Because here's the next thing I want you to remember for tonight is that our affections reveal what we value. Our affections reveal what we actually value. It's not about what you write down in a survey. It's not about what your religion, your parents practice, but your emotions <coughs> will expose what's actually important to you. It's the thing that gets you up in the morning. It's the thing that you think about before you go to bed at night. That is the object of your worship. And let me just say, if your immediate response to this is I'm asking you what your idols are, and you're like, I got it, I know it's my grades, it's sports, it's college. That may be true. You may idolize those things, but I think there's an even deeper level. I think those are still surface level idols. And here's how I know, okay? Because actually, you guys don't care about your grades. What are you saying, Mr. Child? What do you mean? You guys don't care about your grades. Here's how I'll prove it to you, all right? So I want you to imagine you just got, a, you just got your grade back on your test. I don't know, what would just came out? A push, A, A, D, cam, right? Those test scores just came out. And I want you to imagine you got a 76 on that test, right? You got a 76. I had a student this morning tell me she failed her test because she got a 90. But that is not failing. Nowhere in the world is that failing. But I want you to imagine you got a 76, right? Uh, you guys are feeling bad, right? 76? Okay, but now what if I told you everyone else got a 40? Oh, now you're feeling pretty good, right? You go around, you're asking around, you're like, hey, what'd you get? You're like, oh, I did so bad. And you're like, Oh, I got a 55, I got a 52, you're like, oh yeah, I did bad too. But inside you have this, you have this little smirk. Because you know, I got a, they got I got a 76, 
but they got a 45. So you don't actually care about getting a 96 in your class. What you care about is that you are doing better than the people around you. Does that make sense? So this is why I say idols are not your actual grade. Or let's say it's sports. Let's say for you it's sports. Do you actually care about how good you are at that sport? Do you care about being uh, the best volleyball player, the best basketball player? Do you imagine a future for yourself where you are playing in a D1 school, playing in the NBA? Is it the sport itself you care about? Or is it just being better than SFS? What is it that actually matters to you? And so again, I would suggest that your idols are not grades, your idols are not sports, but your idols are things like your reputation. Your idols are things like your success. Your idols are things like security and comfort and your own pride. These are the things that we idolize. And this is the deepest essence of sin. Because if worship, like we said earlier, is acknowledge something's worth, then idolatry is a worship something other than God. And the essence of sin, this is the deepest essence of what sin is, is the failure to value God correctly. When any of us sin, what we are actually doing in our heart of hearts is we are valuing something more than God. We're not sinners because we murder or because we steal, but we are sinners because we worship idols over and over again because we tell God exactly how little he actually matters to us. We don't say it directly in our words or in our prayers, but we say it implicitly in how we invest our time, where we invest our energy, what draws out our strongest emotions. In all of these ways, we are telling God what actually worship, and we are telling God what we actually value, and we are telling God who our actual gods are. And again, if you're sitting there thinking, like, I mean, sure, like, maybe I'm a little bit great obsessed. Maybe I'm a little bit boy crazy. But does that really make me a sinner? Like, it's not like I killed someone, right? Murder is the fifth commandment. The first commandment is what thou shalt have. No other gods before me. And the second commandment is you shall not make any idols. These are priority commandments. The greatest commandment is what you shall Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These are priority sins. And my question is, what is it that you actually love with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind? So this is what false worship looks like. How then do we begin to participate in true worship? The first thing we see is by looking at a worthy God. Paul begins chapter 12 by saying, therefore, brothers. And what is that therefore, therefore? Because in chapters 1 through 11, he just got done describing the mercies of God. And the ESV says, by the mercies. But here I actually think the NIV translates it better. It says, in view of God's mercy. The Greek word is dia, which can be translated either through or it can be translated as for the sake of because of or in view of. And if you follow Paul's line of reasoning here, what Paul is doing is he just finished exalting in the wisdom and glory and mercy of God. And now in chapter 12, Paul is saying, in view of that mercy, we ought to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, which is our spiritual act of worship. And what is that mercy? It is the mercy of God that looked down from heaven at a sinful and idolatrous idolatrous people and said, I will make them mine. It is the mercy of God that sent his one and only son to die on a cross for our sins, 
to her people who ignore and outright reject him again and again and again. And it is the mercy of God that saved us from the wrath of God so that we might forever enjoy the presence of God. That is the mercy that Paul is talking about. And I've said this before, that encounter, I'll say it again, is that if you're here tonight, even if you're not a Christian, uh, when you hear this gospel message, you might not believe that it's a true story, but there has to be some part of you that acknowledges that it is an utterly beautiful story. The gospel story is the story of a king who gives his life to save his rebellious people. It is the story of a husband who buys back his adulterous wife. It is the story of a father who welcomes back his wandering son. And it is the story of a God who washes his creation's feet. That is the story of the gospel. That is the mercy that Paul is talking about. It is a story of unfathomable love, unfathomable love immeasurable grace, and boundless mercy. And so how are we set free from our addiction to our idols? How do we break out of our false worship? It is only as we view God's mercy. If right now the Holy Spirit is convicting you of sin, like, and I don't think that's all of you right now. I think that's some of you guys right now. You know uh, what your idols are. You know how devoted you are to them. And the Holy Spirit is convicting you of that. The solution to our idolatry is not behavior modification. Fundamentally, what you need to adjust is not how you behave. What we need to adjust is what we behold. Because what we are beholding is the success of other people. We see YouTube videos about how I got into Harvard, how I took an AP exam and got a five without taking the class. If that is all we are beholding, then that is what we will find valuable. But as you adjust your gaze and behold God, and you gaze at the gospel, and you view his mercy, then you will begin to worship because our worship of God is rooted in our understanding of his worth. This is our big idea for now. Our worship of God is rooted in our understanding of his worth. You think that succeeding in school is worthwhile because you think that it will save you from failure. And you think that sports are worthwhile because it will save you from inadequacy. You think relationships are worthwhile because it will save you from being lonely. How much more worthy, then, is the God who saved you from death? How much more worthy is the God who saved your very soul? And what happens as a result of understanding God's endless worth is that we can then begin to actually live a worthwhile life. Begin to live a worthwhile life. Again, verse 1, he says, Present your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is an allusion to the Old Testament sacrificial system where animals would be offered as sacrifices in the temple. But if you think about it, that phrase, living sacrifice, is a bit of an oxymoron because when you sacrifice something, what happens to it? It dies, right? So how can something be a living sacrifice? To be a regular sacrifice is to die once. But to be a living sacrifice is a call to die every day. To be a regular sacrifice is to die once. But to be a living sacrifice is a call to die every single day. It is a call to change the trajectory of our lives, that we no longer live to gratify our own flesh, and no longer live in order to achieve our own vain ambitions. Because worship is not a one-time act, it is a lifestyle. And when you live a life of worship, 
you will actually live a life that is worthwhile. If you live a life of false worship, a life that is devoted to the idols of success and influence and comfort, then all you will have to show at the end of your life, you'll have a collection of a bunch of stuff that's going to end up in a landfill. You'll set records that will eventually be broken. Uh, and you'll accomplish things that will soon be forgotten. But if you live a life devoted to the fame of Jesus at the end of your life, you will have made an impact that will ripple across generations. Acts of service that will be remembered by God for all eternity. And at the end, you will hear the voice of God that will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Because if you worship worthless idols, you'll live an unworthy life. But if you worship the God of endless worth, then your life will be worthwhile. And so how do we do that? How do we live a life of worship? These are some pieces of wisdom that I've gleaned. Uh, this is not all from Romans 12. These are from different parts of scripture, uh, just from experiences that I've had. Um, of how do we live that life of worship? The first thing uh, is worship communally. Ephesians 5.19 says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. I think in today's day and age of Spotify and YouTube Premium, it is so easy to listen to worship songs on our own and feel like, hey, I did, I, I did my worship thing today. And that is absolutely, that is a great avenue of grace. That's why we have made a Spotify playlist for Encounter Songs. However, but the Bible calls us to worship communally with one another. It's, we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Because as we do that, as we sing songs to one another that contain truths about the character of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are able to borrow one another's faith, and our faith rises as you hear these truths being declared. The first thing is worship communally. The second thing is worship in the mundane. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Again, worship is not just something that happens here because we're singing a song and encounter because you're at church. We are called to worship God in everything we do. Uh, when I was teaching in Champaign, Illinois, uh, I was serving at a church. Um, it, was, it was a pan-Asian, Asian-American church, about a thousand people uh, that was reaching out to the college students there. Um, and I was serving in, uh, I, I don't say this to both, this is just the reality. I was serving in a lot of different capacities there. Okay, So I was a college small group leader. Uh, I was a Sunday school preacher. Uh, I was on the missions focus team. I was responsible for training the missions teams. Um, I wrote the sermon. Man, like there, was, there were so many, all these things that I did that I felt like really important ways of worshiping God. But what happened is that as I took on all these roles, standing in front of so many people, is that I, like, I constantly felt anxious uh, to the point where towards the latter end of my uh, tenure there, like, I could feel myself almost starting to have panic attacks because of just how much I had on my plate. Uh, but uh, every year at our church, one thing that we would do is that the missions teams would cook and host Easter dinner for our church. So it's about 1,000 people, and about 30 people are cooking for 1,000 people, right? And so the majority of the missions teams uh, would be upstairs. They'd be, like, carrying the plates and serving all the different church members uh, dinner and stuff like that. Uh, but there would be four people who would be sent downstairs to the basement to what we call the dungeon. And in the dungeon, they would just be nonstop washing dishes for four hours, and so the missions pastor, uh, he's designating roles, and then he goes, uh, all right, uh, for the dungeon, I'm going to pick the four guys who need uh, the most humbling, the 
four most arrogant guys. He says, Joey, Daniel, Morgan, Chris Shaw. <laughs> right? So I get sent to the dungeon, and I'm like, I'm going to be washing dishes. Like everyone else, it's like Easter dinner. Everyone's dressed up nice. You're taking pictures of your small group. It's like this really big affair. Um, I'm just in the dungeon in like basketball shorts and a t-shirt, just scrubbing away for four hours. I'm like, man, this is going to be miserable. Um, but what I found was that while I was washing those dishes for four hours, that was the happiest I was in months. Um, because for the first time, like ministry didn't feel like it depended on my performance and how well I did. Uh, but I was just able to serve God in a simple way by washing dishes. And I was so thankful that I got to wash dishes for Jesus. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. You can worship God here at Encounter. You can worship God washing dishes. You can worship God in whatever you do, as long as it's the heart of worship. It doesn't matter if you're in front of a thousand people. It doesn't matter if you're in a basement, as long as you're doing it for him. Third thing is worship sacrificially. When David was building an altar to the Lord, Aronua the Jebusite saw the king coming and offered to give the land and the animals to him for free. And this is how David responds. He says, no, but I will buy it from you for a price, for I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. So much so. David's so cool. How do you come up with that line? I will not offer sacrifice to my God that cost me nothing. Uh, if you are ever, sorry, if you are only ever willing to take time out of your day and out of your week for God because you have nothing else to do when it's convenient for you, when it costs you nothing, then again, you are communicating to God very clearly where he stands with you. But we ought to offer our God sacrificial and costly worship because what we are willing to sacrifice for God says exactly how much we value God. And whatever you can't give to God, that is your God. So worship in a way that is costly. And if it costs you nothing, then you have to question how valuable is God to me. Fourth thing is to worship unashamedly. This is another story from David, and just David is he is and he, he was the man after God's own heart. He was the worshiper. And when the Ark of the Covenant was being brought back into the city, David was so happy that he danced before the Ark, exposing his nakedness onto the onlookers. And his wife, Michal, scorned him for it. And David responds by saying, And I will make myself even more contemptible, even more undignified than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. David says that because it is before my God that I dance, it doesn't matter how dignified I am. David worships with unashamed abandon before his God. Uh, for those of us in this room who come from an Asian background, from a collective society, uh, there are some benefits. I think there are a lot of benefits that come with being a collective society. Um, you can just get things done a lot easier. Uh, but there are a lot of cons too. And one of those cons is that we just tend to be so self-conscious of what others think of us. Um, and... Some of you guys are so self-conscious when you worship. Like you look around the room to see how much other people are getting into it. You're kind of feeling it out. You don't want to sing too loud. The person next to you is not singing too loud. You check to make sure like someone who's cool is worshiping. Um, if someone's worshiping a little bit differently than you, then you're like kind of giggling to yourself and you're, you're judging them for it. Um, but man, 
Is it before man or is it before God that you are worshiping? Who are you worshiping in front of? And if it is before God, then you can absolutely be unashamed. Because he is looking at your heart, not your voice, not your movements. Um, I served at a summer school program for about five years. Uh, and I, I am a high school teacher. Okay? I, I, don't, I don't do well with elementary kids. I, I think they're cute. It's about five minutes, and then, and then I need my distance. Um, but I used to teach fifth grade every summer. And so while I'm there, like, uh, we would open every morning by singing these like VBS type children's Christian songs. Um, and like, you, like you, guys, you guys see, you know what I look like, and I'm a grown man in the back, and all the teachers are girls, and we're doing like these like VBS motions while we're singing these songs, and I feel ridiculous. Um, and at the end of the summer, you know, I'm like, God, what, what, what was I supposed to learn this summer? Why, why did you bring me here? Um, and I felt like I was saying, Chris, you, you danced uh, before me every morning. Five days a week, you danced in my presence, and you worshiped with all of your heart. And you spent time in my presence, and that was what I wanted for you. Um, and I was so happy to get to dance for my king. Uh, and lastly, is worship unceasingly. This is the picture that we get in Revelation chapter 5. And it says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The picture we have in Revelation is of all creation, all creation joined together in the worship of God. Some of your guys' worship stamina is so low. Um, like I, I talk to you know, different students, I'm like, guys, how many songs should we sing tonight? And people are like, oh, like two and a half, like two songs feels like it's too little, three songs feels like it's too much, one song at chapel is unbearable, uh, like your worship stamina is so low, um, and that's because, it's not because standing is hard, right? It's not because making noise is hard, I've seen you at games, right? Um, but your worship stamina is low because your view of God's worth is low. Your worship stamina is low because your view of God's worth is low. People who have a high view of God, they cannot wait to worship. And no amount of worship seems to be commiserate to the eternally valuable God. But in heaven, when our sin nature is plucked out of us, we will worship God unceasingly because with unveiled face we will behold him and we will finally see just how much he is worth. And we will spend all of eternity being overwhelmed by his glory, overwhelmed by his majesty and his beauty. And we will join the angels and the elders in unceasing praise. Uh, I had this conversation with my Bible since this past week as we're looking at Revelation. And um, I don't know. You guys are at school for maybe 40 hours a week. You guys have practiced maybe 10, 12 hours a week. Um, you guys are encountered for two hours a week. Outside of that, I don't know what your worship life looks like. I don't know what your word life looks like. Um, and, you know, I ask people, like, hey, you coming out this week? And they're like, Mr. Chai, I can't. I got, I got two exams tomorrow. Mr. Chai, like, I'm so tired after practice. All these different reasons why. Um, you will be a student maybe six more years. You know, med school, maybe 10. Uh, you will work maybe 40, 50 years. Uh, you will worship if you are in Christ, uh, you will worship forever and ever. 
And so you tell me what's the more real thing that you do on a day-to-day basis. Is it studying? Is it sports? Is it your friendships? What is the more substantial thing? Because one of those things will cease, but worship will never end. Because our big idea, our worship of God, is rooted in our understanding of his worth. And we will see him with unveiled face uh, once and for all when we are in heaven. We are called to give our lives as a living sacrifice for God. But we will only begin to do that when we realize that he first gave his life as a sacrifice for us. We will worship him as we see his worth. 